And we're in Ephesians, and so we've been, since uh, June we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we've made our way to chapter 6, and we're looking at chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. And in cha- the end of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, Paul's painting for us a picture of what the biblical family looks like. Now, I want to bring up a couple of pictures, and I'm, I'm going to try not to get in the way. So, Graham, pull up the first picture. All right, so when I'm giving you a series of pictures um, from different kind of ages and stages where uh, kind of pictures presented as kind of the ideal of family life. So this is a popular uh, portrait from the Victorian era. So it's from England. So this would be something you'd find on people's kind of walls in their home. And if you look, kind of notice some of the kind of values that are implicit in the picture. So you kind of see everyone's around the father. There's lots of children. There's five of them. Uh, The father's reading a book to everyone. So some of the the things they valued in their picture of, of the family. Look at the next one. This one... Norman Rockwell comes from the 1950s, so this is kind of a portrait of like the ideal American family in the 50s. You have the grandfather at the head of the table. You have multiple generations around the meal. They're, they're laughing. There's some pre- pretty clearly defined kind of gender uh, roles. Now, moving into our modern era, what's the picture of the modern family? Okay, so that's the modern family, and if you kind of know anything about that show, you know, maybe not as clear on things like gender roles and what marriage is or work is or family. So in this picture, um, marriage is really the voluntary attachment of two attracted people who are seeking personal fulfillment through that person. And so it's kind of an ideal of what our modern family is like. But not just culturally, every family, every family you're in or a part of kind of projects a certain image about our ideal, who we are, who we want to be. So here's some, a uh, couple of family photos I just stole off the internet. So these aren't people. Um, and I don't know if you do this in Florida. I don't know if Floridian families, where they go, but this kind of picture is completely ubiquitous where I come from, either Atlanta or in Alabama. And so in Alabama, every family has this picture where they travel down to the Gulf Shores and they all dress up wearing the same outfit. Normally it's a white shirt and khakis, and then they pose on the beach. So I don't know where you Floridians go for their family photos if you go to the beach too. But the, So kind of look at this picture of what it tells about this family. So here are the things we care about. Like we're the fun family who, uh, you know, we're cool, we're fun. Um, this is probably my favorite picture. So if you got the weekly emails, you saw this one yesterday. So this is a family very similar. Like we're the cool family. We're going to have fun, but often... And things don't really work out as you planned. So you have ambitions to have a certain paint a certain portrait of your family, and they don't go the way you think. We can leave that up for a second. Will that be too distracting if that's in the background? We might need to take it down. But uh, so the question is, what? So two questions to think about: What picture is your family painting? of what portrait are you painting by the way you live? And then what picture does the Bible paint? What portrait does it give us of a family? What's the picture of a family that the Bible paints for us? And last week and this week, we're looking at that picture, that portrait from Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 21 all the way through 6, verse 4, because it's one of the most comprehensive biblical portraits of what a godly family looks like. So what, what are the marks of a godly family? 
So last week it showed us the marks of a, a godly marriage. What's, it was, it's a case study in what spirit-filled family looks like. So you have the Holy Spirit indwelling the people. You have this um, mutual submission where everyone is joyfully submitting to one another. You have the marks of a husband who is self-sacrificially loving his family in such a way where he says, I would rather die than not have you thrive. And then you have the image of a wife who's helping him and serving the family, and she's giving respect, he's giving love. And then now we switch and transition this morning to the children. So how do the children respond to the parents? So it's parenting and children. And so what Ephesians gives us is this glorious picture of what a godly family looks like. So this morning, I just want us to think about two things. What's the picture of being godly children that it paints? And what's the picture of being godly, especially fathers, but parents that it paints? So those two things. So as we look at this, I just remember some of the context as we've been going through Ephesians the key thing in this whole section is be filled with the Spirit and submit to one another. So, uh, Spirit-filled, joyfully submitting. And part of the big picture of Ephesians is that uh, God's eternal plan is to unite all things underneath Christ, chapter 1, verse 10. And then His plan is to demonstrate His wisdom and beauty and power through His church to the, to the heavenlies, chapter 3, verse 10. And then the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now uh, available to you to transform you in three distinct communities, in your church community, as you're in the world and at home. And the power of the resurrected Christ is available to transform us in church, in the world, and at home. And where we are is in that at-home section. Now, as we move, you know, we're talking about marriage. We're talking about parenting this morning. Uh, talking about parenting, talking about the children, talking about raising children. And you'll find, I recognize that there's few things that can raise a sense of, of guilt, quite like a talk on parenting, so I, I don't really know any parent who really feels like, yeah, we've got it all together. It's like every parent I know, and maybe it's just the stage of the life of the parents that we're around, because we have four children, six and under, and maybe just all of us feel like failures all the time. But I'm reminded of the, I don't know if you've ever heard the story about the preacher who, uh, in his first sermon series he ever preached before he had kids, um, he preached a series on parenting called The Ten Commandments of Raising Godly Children. And it was good. And he was confident. And then he had children. And then they got to be, you know, between five and ten. And he, he adjusted the sermon series to five pretty good suggestions on raising godly children. And then they became teenagers. And it became a few thoughts that might work, might not. I don't really know. <laughs> and so that's the way it is. There's, you know, we all want... Oh, the, the fun family's gone. We all want the, the picture of the, the fun family who lives in the light of the beauty and the glory of the gospel, but often things just don't work out the way we planned. And so we're going to look at the biblical principles for raising a godly family. And one thing is really important as we look through the principles, and I forgot this last week, but one of the beauties about preaching every week is you get to come back the next week and say it over. And uh, the thing the Bible does is it gives us the principles... But then it expects you to be an adult and provide the details. So like last week, talked about in marriage, the different roles, like responsibilities for husbands and wives. It gives you the principles, like wives, you're to respect your husbands. Husbands, you're to love your wives. But all of the details, it's your job to work those out. 
And the same with parenting and then children. What it's going to do for us is it'll give us the principles, but it's our responsibility to work the details out. Or it will give you the shape of a godly family. It's your responsibility to provide the shade and the color. It'll give you the, the, the context. You provide the color. And that's actually the, the lesson behind the kids. Look at your sheet. So the coloring sheet you got in, and if you look on the kids' coloring sheet, they actually have the lines of the family, but none of the specifics or details because you have to color those in. So that's an important thing to remember. It'll give you the shape. You have to provide the shade. But let's think about our picture, the picture of godly children and the picture of godly parents and fathering. So let's start chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, for this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So two things here, a picture of godly children, picture of godly parenting uh, addressed to the fathers. Uh, notice in this first section to children, I find it fascinating. He's addressing children specifically, so he assumes the kids are going to be there so they hear him. So he assumes the, the, the letter, the, the logic, the way it would work is uh, the Lord's people would gather on the Lord's day to hear the Lord's word read, and then they would be addressed. And so he speaks to the children, and then notice he gives, in essence, two commands, obey and then honor. So there's a command, and then he gives three reasons. Obey because it's right, because it's been commanded, and because it's good for you. It will go well for you if you do. So obey, because it's the right thing to do. It's how God's designed the world. It's right, it's been commanded, and it's good for you. And so let's think about the two things for children. The first thing is obey and then honor. So let's think about obey for a second. And, uh, you know, we live in a culture, in a world where we kind of bristle at the idea of obedience, you know, I don't know when the kids first say, nobody's the boss of me. It's on the playground, probably in kindergarten. But it's something we, it, it, it comes early and we say often. So think about obedience. You know, historians believe that a significant shift happened in America in the 60s where uh, we shifted into a culture that was kind of anti-authority. So anti-establishment um, anti-business, anti-government, anti-military, anti-school, anti family. An article in Time Magazine, probably uh, it was 1987, was written by Annie Gottlieb, who was kind of the, one of the intellectual uh, kind of energy behind the feminist movement in the 60s. And uh, she was writing in 1987 about all right, what happened, <laughs> what actually happened in the 60s. Because you know, uh, the way just history works is you need a certain space after an event to actually be able to have any sense of what actually happened. And as uh, like academic historians say, pretty much you need about 40 years in between an event before you can start doing real history to actually have some sense of what happened. Up until then, it's just journalism. You're just reporting on the event. So you really need about 40 years. So in some ways, we're just really getting to the point where we can actually make sense of what happened in the 60s and 70s. And she was arguing that, uh, so this was an article she wrote, 1987, they're looking back in the 60s and saying, all right, what were we doing? What was that? And uh, listen to what she wrote. 
She said, the 60s, that was the generation that destroyed the American family. Said, we might not have been able, she was kind of a, an anarchist, let's bring down the man. She said, we might not have been able to tear down the state, but the family was closer. We could get our hands on it. And we believe that the family was the foundation of the state, and as well as the, co- the foundation of the collective state of mind. We truly believe that the family had to be torn apart so that free love which alone could heal the damage done when we split the atom to release the energy. And the first step was to tear ourselves free from our parents. So it's an interesting logic that when we split the atom, the only way to heal that fission is to tear apart the family. So we have to burn everything down before we can build anything back up. But it's chilling because it recognizes that the family is the foundation of the society. And we got to tear that down so free love can reign. And we look at right, what is actual... So what that shows us is kind of haunting because it shows us actually whether or not children obey their parents, there's a lot more going on than just the basic stability of that home. It's actually central to the basic stability of a society. When I was a youth minister, um, one, we did just, I was about to say men's Bible study, but it was with the teenage boys, so it wasn't men's Bible study, but boys' Bible study sounds kind of, th- anyway, a Bible study with the teenage boys, and one of the things we did is we just said, all right, let's just look at the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about how children should obey their parents? And we just picked out verses and read them, and I still remember the, kind of the weight as we read verses like... Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, if anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father and mother, and his blood is on his own hands. Or Deuteronomy 21, 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town, and then all the men of the town shall stone him to death to purge the evil from among you. I remember the teenage boys hearing like, like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know it was that serious. They say, all right, well, why? Why does the Bible take obedience to parents so serious? I mean, I mean, look, boys will be boys. That's what they do. Is it? And then how come we looked at like Romans 1, Paul, Romans 1 is one of the darkest chapters in the whole Bible. And one of the things that Paul marks is this slide into darkness starts because they did not give thanks to God. They weren't thankful and then they disobeyed their parents. Like, hmm. And then in 2 Timothy, it talks about uh, in the end times, we enter one of the darkest stages of history. One of the marks is children won't obey their parents. Why is this so important and so central, especially when they're, they're young? So one of the things the Bible tells us is actually the foundation for not just any healthy family, but any healthy society is obedience in properly constituted authority structures. So understanding the God-given authority that's been given. So disobedience, especially when children are young. So he's talking to children, or technon, assuming that these kids are under the authority. They're still at home. They're under the authority of their parents. So what is obedience? So here's a definition. Let's pull that up, Graham. To obey is a willing... This is from uh, Paul Tripp and his book on getting to the heart of parenting. It says, to obey is a willing submission to my parents... So willing submission to my parents, that causes me to do what I'm told. Then he gives three kind of caveats. It's without challenge, without excuse, without delay. 
So I'm obeying my parents without challenge, without excuse, without delay. We have a saying that it seems we say over and over at our house. It's obedience the first time with a cheerful heart. First time with a cheerful heart. So that's part of obedience is getting to the point it's without challenge, without excuse, without delay. So it's worth just pausing. Kids, how are you doing? How are you doing at obeying your parents without challenge, without excuse, without delay? Older kids... Adults, how are we doing? That's the first command, obey. The second one is honor. Now, there's an interesting shift that happens because as you're young, the key thing is obedience, and then the shift comes where from obedience it becomes honor. And this is slightly different. It's a little more nuanced. What does it mean to honor? So next slide, Graham, is uh, here's Paul Tripp again saying, uh, honor means treating my parents with respect and esteem because of their God-appointed position of authority. And it's one thing remembering my parents, one, they're not peers, and then we don't give commands. So the way you honor your parents, especially your children, is understanding um, they're not your peers, so they're not your friends, and then parents understanding they're not your peers. Uh, you're their parents. They have friends at school. They need parents at home. So not peers, but then also the way commands work. So commands don't flow up the chain. Commands flow down. Requests flow up. So there's one thing about honoring your parents is you don't dictate commands to them. You give requests. And this is because this is how it works. You know, that's why we have prayer requests. God sends commands. We send requests. It's kind of the flow. So that's honor. So let's think about that for a second. What does it mean to honor? Because as you grow and as you mature and as you move into adulthood, you know, what does it look like for you, maybe, what does it look like for a three-year-old to honor their parents, a 13-year-old, a 23-year-old, 33, 43, 53, 63, 73? How do you honor your parents when you're 73? What does it look like for adults to honor their parents? Because one of the things honor helps us understand that there's not only going to be a whole range of situations in life, there's a whole range of parents, so, for example, you know, at, you know when, when the children are infants, like two-year-old, obedience is central to their life. A three-year-old is utterly dependent for all things on their parents. Now, if you're 33 and you're utterly dependent for all things on your parents, that's, that's a different situation, a different dynamic. It's not as, as healthy. So what do you do? How do you, how do you adjust as you move through the stages? But not just d- different stages for children, trying to think how to say there's different qualities is not the word I'm looking for abilities isn't right either I can't think of the right word so you can fill it in Uh, different types of parents so we can say without any worry like uh, not violating the law of non-contradiction half of all parents are below average so half of all parents are below average and then not just are some parents are below actually some parents are poor some are bad some are evil. So what does honoring your parent look like in those different? So you can have great parents, good parents, average parents, below average, poor, evil. We had a family we were close to, a little girl we were close to our church in Alabama, three doors down. Um, came from a home, four kids in the home, four different fathers. The oldest son was 17, had never learned how to read because the, the parents had intentionally kept him from learning how to read so they could receive the disability check. So she's 13. She's the only adult in the house. What does it look like for her to honor her parents? 
What does it look like in different stages and situations? One of the things here that honor comes from the Hebrew word kavod, which is also glory, kavod. Glory means honor, give weight to. So to honor means you're giving weight to. Um, to dishonor means you're treating it as light and flippant. So treating them with contempt or uh, light. So give honor to whom honors do. And just kind of as a side note, this, kind of, this doesn't just apply to parenting. It's for all um, authority uh, in, in society. But what does it mean to give, to give honor? How can adult children honor their parents? A um, couple things to think about. Uh, some ways you can do it, and this comes from Tim Keller's book on the meaning of marriage. And you think about uh, adult children can honor their parents by finding the appropriate ways in their culture to honor them. So every family, every culture has just certain ways that you can honor your parents. Maybe it's where dad sits at the table or the deference given in certain ways. There's ways in every culture and family. There's certain symbols that uh, represent honoring. One thing he says really fascinating is don't underestimate their need to see themselves reproduced in you. Or don't underestimate what it does to them to hear you aware of the good things that they have done. So you can see the things like, you know, I saw, I know you were a hard worker and you may not have been there as much as I thought you should have been when I was 16. But now as I get older, I recognize uh, the, how hard you were working. I admire that. Or I got that from you. I, I do this well and I receive that from you and it's good. Another thing that's really helpful as you age and as you move into a point where you're adults honoring adult parents is let them change. You know, if you're an adult, hopefully you're not the same as you were when you were 13, and neither are they. So let them change. One of the sad things we know, like one of the sad things you live in a small town where everybody knows everybody, is people get typecast into certain um, characteristics, and they're not ever allowed to change. So you'd hear people talking about, oh, you know, there's uh, Billy Bob, and Billy Bob was the one who, when he was in ninth grade, he let the chickens loose in the, in the high school hall. You know, well, Billy Bob's 45 years old, and he's a mature adult. He doesn't do that. He's actually changed. People change. And so you honor your parents by letting them, uh, letting them change. Another way you honor them is by forgiving them. Have you ever heard the saying that adulthood begins when you recognize that your parents aren't perfect? That's when you begin to become an adult, but you become an adult when you forgive them for it. So it begins when you recognize they're not perfect, but it, it, it's complete. You become an adult when you forgive them for it. You know, one of the things that parents are challenged to do, fathers, especially here in verse 4, is you raise the children up. But some people um, are not ever, they don't ever grow up because they can't ever let go. Again, when we were at our church in Alabama, you know, one of the interesting dynamics is, you know, it was the first Baptist church. So, you know, there was like 1,000 people on the, who were members, but only like 50 people came. So everybody in the town was a member of our church, but nobody came. And uh, so you'd ask the people, just kind of tell your story. Why? They say, oh, yeah, we used to go. I used to go to church, but, and there's always some story. And you want to hear the story and enter in. Why? What happened? And, you know, you'd often hear things like, I used to go to the church, but, my, my parents forced me to go. We were there every time the doors were open, and my dad forced me to go every week, so I'm not making my kids go. 
And you want to be sympathetic because there's some, there's some type of pain. There's relational pain there. But if you start to probe a little bit with that logic... So, okay, it was bad that your parents forced you to go to church, I guess. But they also forced you to do a lot of other things. Like they forced you to brush your teeth and go to school and go to football practice and go to the dentist. Are you not going to have your kids do that either? And then what the sad thing is, is for a person who lives under that weight and they're just living their life as a rejection of what their parents forced them to do, they've never grown up because they're still being controlled by them. They're still being controlled because they haven't forgiven. So as you look at the, 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 this is a reference here to the fifth commandment, and you think, all right, how are we doing? So kids, do you ever talk back to your parents? Do you ever hide anything from them? Do you secretly curse them under your breath while they're telling you to do things? Or as you grow, do you speak well of them? Are you taking the time that it takes to strengthen your relationship with them and And then as they grow, giving them the care they need and the honor they deserve. It's all a part of this children obeying and honoring your parents. But as we move on, what's the picture it paints of godly fathers or godly parents? We'll put both together, honor father and mother. Fathers, notice what it says. So the kids get, in essence, two commands, obey and then honor, and then three reasons. And then it says fathers. Do not, there's two commands, don't do this, but do this. So fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. So don't provoke them, but then bring them up. Nurture. And this word, bring them up, is actually the same word used for nurture in chapter 5, for husbands, nurture and cherish your wife. So nurture them. Bring them up. And then in two things, discipline and instruction. Or if you have the King James in the, the, the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. So discipline, instruction. So the father's responsibility are to, to, in essence, to do two things. You're to provide discipline and then also affection. Nurture and then structure. And probably the image I didn't put, probably the image we need for this is you're almost walking on a tightrope, tightrope. And so how can we, on the one hand is discipline, on the other hand is uh, affection. And what we need, uh, you know, the key here is you need to be wise in how you do things. So let's look at, you know, discipline in essence is action. Admonition or instruction is words, teaching, and you, you have to have both. You know, if you think about just kind of more conservative circles, parenting is about control. Uh, more liberal circles is about love and affirmation. The Bible says you actually have to have both. To you have one without the other is you're being negligent. And you need to be wise. You need to be wise. So discipline, what's that? You know, the, the Proverbs uh, 22, 15, don't spare the rod. What's, what's the rod? What's discipline? When we think about discipline, our na- mind generally goes to how you punish. And that's part of it. Um, you have to, for healthy parenting, have some type of disobedience deterrent. But part of the wisdom is it's your responsibility to determine what that is. There has to be some deterrent for disobedience, but it could be many things. Uh, could be spanking, could be timeout, could be taking away privileges. The goal for discipline is to get you to a point so you're making healthy habits. 
It's restorative. And so you're building healthy habits. That's the goal. You know, you think about discipline in music, discipline in sports, discipline in school. Uh, the goal isn't necessarily punishment. The goal is healthy habits so you do the right thing when nobody's watching. That's the goal, discipline. But you need wisdom. It's a communal affair. You can't do it alone. And then also instruction. Instruction is about training, building people up, teaching. And, you know, every child is different. This is one of the reasons why parents need so much wisdom and you need community because every child will be different. What will discipline one won't discipline another. What will help train and connect with one won't train and connect with another. Everyone needs specialized uh, parental plan. But every stage, and then it's different, difficult because you need wisdom, every stage will have its unique joys and challenges to do these things well. And one of the challenges for parents is in every stage to embrace uh, the unique joys and challenges in that stage and not wish you were in another one, but embrace it, enjoy it. Different stages, they'll need different things. I was thinking about this week, just how in the teenage years, trying to plan ahead. So our, our oldest is six, so thinking, what a, how, do you, how do you plan ahead for such a thing? And uh, what do kids need in the teenage years? And one of the things I think they need is they need as many godly role models around them as they can get. It's one of the importance of church community. It takes, you need as many role models as they can get. If you allow them just to remain in the teenage echo chamber that they live in, they and everyone else will go crazy. They need as many role models as they can get. But as you look through here, there's two things. In one sense, there's two ways that you can ruin your child is not delight in them enough and then not train them enough. If you just kind of let them be free to discover who they are, that's not helpful. And then if you uh, crush them, that's not ever. You can't over-discipline and be abusive and you can't under-discipline. You have to have both. And it's a tightrope you have to walk. You know, if, if you're personally too undisciplined, then you're actually going to provoke them to anger because you're not going to give them the consistency and the structure they need, but if you're always afraid of their disapproval, uh, then you'll overindulge. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be brought up? It's bringing them to a place where they're a co-adult with you. You're raising them up to let them out, to let them go. So fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. So how can we do these type of things? What's the key? How can you uh, have the power not to overindulge your child because you're so afraid of their disapproval? Or where do you get the power to not overdrive them because you're trying to vicariously live your life through them? Where does the power come to do these well? Well, in one sense, you can go back to the Ten Commandments or go back to the picture and think, all right, everybody wants kind of this, this picture we want, but where does the power come to, to accomplish it? Because I think nobody can honestly look at what the Bible says about parenting and not have some sense of, um, well, I need help. So think about children. All right, children, how can you obey your parents? How can you follow that command? Because you could say, all right, well, let's be honest. No, nobody's perfect. There's no perfect child who always obeys his father, is there? Well, that's not just a rhetorical question. Is there? Has there ever been a perfect child who obeyed his father no matter what? And there was. There was one who obeyed his father no matter what, and actually obedience to that father took him down into the deepest darkness and the ultimate pain. 
But his obedience unleashed a forgiveness for all of our disobedience. Because of his perfect obedience, we can find forgiveness when we're, we're, we don't obey. So uh, he ultimately honored his father perfectly. So all of us who don't honor our fathers perfectly can find hope and healing and life. And of course, you'll never honor your earthly fathers till you honor your heavenly father. So some things to think about is what does it mean to be a healthy member of his family? Baptism is one of the first marks of incorporation into his family. And this year, we're going to get a regular rhythm of baptism so we can celebrate incorporation into his family. Church membership is one of the marks of being a member of the, God's family in his church. Seeking out healthy, honoring is seeking healthy relationships. But in parenting, how can we, where do we find hope and life to bring into reality the picture that we see painted here. And one thing I just want to leave you with is remember these things are a picture. They're the picture. But all throughout this, the, the gospel is the real thing. A healthy, godly, sacrificial marriage is just a picture of what Christ, uh, the way he loves and honors his bride, the church. So the, the godly family is a picture of the heavenly family. And so don't love the picture more than you love the reality. You know, how foolish would you think I was if I held a picture of my family and loved it and loved to introduce you to it, but ignored the actual reality of my family, the real flesh and blood family? Don't love the picture more than you love the reality. And the gospel is the reality. So no matter what you've experienced in the picture, no matter what the picture of your family has been like or you experienced it, the gospel is the reality. And that's actually the only hope for those of you who come from bad families. That's your, that's your only hope. Because your hope is that one day you'll experience the ultimate family that you never had. Or if you're in a difficult marriage, you can look to the gospel to get strength and power. Because you know who's been in the most difficult marriage in the history of the earth? Jesus. The church is his bride, and he's in a difficult marriage, and he stayed. You know who's dealt with difficult children worse than anything we'll ever experience? It's God the Father. Israel is his firstborn, and the entire Old Testament is a story of them, uh, the prodigal constantly offending and disobeying and abandoning, and he's still there. So if you come from a difficult family, the gospel is your hope. But also if you come from a good family, you know, if you had the privilege of coming from a good family, that's a tremendous blessing, you know, the Princeton sociologist Robert Worthnow uh, would tell his students, he kind of get, he would get a little uh, aggravated at their entitlement, and he'd say things like, do you know who the privileged class in America is? And he'd say, but yeah, we got to stick it to the privileged class. They're oppressing everyone. He'd say, no, no, you are the privileged class. If you're in college, you're the privileged class. If you know the name of your father, you're the privileged class. Because you've been given a gift that many people in this country do not have. So if you come from a good family where you think, all right, you know, the, the hope is the gospel. Because in good families, we can become too needy and too dependent and put too much of a weight on them. And then the gospel is also the only hope if you say you have come from no marriage or no family. And you think, man, my, I would give anything to experience. I'm always the bride, bridesmaid, never the bride. Or I'd love, to have, I'd love to have a family picture of kids falling all over the place because at least I had some. 
But if that's true of you, the gospel is the only hope because those pictures are just a shadow of the reality. And you will experience the reality. Love the real thing more than you love the picture. And then you'll experience one day. That's why a couple weeks ago we looked at Revelation 21, and he's going to make all things new because that's the reality that all of us are moving towards to experience. So let's pray. And as we do, we want to spend some time praying just for our families that they'll experience these things both uh, at the spiritual level and then at the practical level. I want to take a moment to pray this morning for um, Brad and Amy Supple. So if you know the Supples, her father uh, had heart surgery about six months ago and then hadn't been able to come visit, came and visited yesterday. And then there was some complications. And last night they took him to the hospital. So they're, they're at the ER right now. So I'm pray for them and their family. Let's pray.